Welcome, everybody, to um, the second of Slavoj Žižek's master classes for the Birkbeck and the last, no. and the last, the second and last for the Birkbeck Institute for the Humanities. I won't introduce him extensively for two reasons. Many of you were here yesterday, and I introduced him then. And secondly. He needs no introduction, as I also said yesterday. But I will remark on one thing, or else there would be an elephant in the room. Um, In between his visits to us, he appeared on Channel 4 News, speaking about refugees in Europe. With his predictable unpredictability, he set off a social media storm of responses. So really, I didn't know. Mm, really. For your delectation, for yours too. Yeah. I, am I accused of being a fascist? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 I of got course. the ch- most choice on. So some of the most recent epithets about Zizek. Yeah. Completely useless mass of intellectualized garbage. That I knew. Coke-addled millionaire Nazi. (laughs) Well, I would like... What is the first first part? Coke. Coke. Coke? Coke. This is... Coke is coke addict, like... Yeah, but I think it means cocaine. I don't know. You should know. No, but that's the point. I like it so much. When I visited the first time... Sorry to interrupt you. There's one... uh, Argentina. All those creepy Lacanians there, who are uh, uh, personally much more unpleasant and stupid than Kleinians and Freudians, there was the general diagnosic I, I, uh, by sniffing it's cocaine all the time. Mm-hmm. Believe me or not, I'm the only person, even you admit it, look deep into your heart, you at least tried maybe some marijuana or what, everyone did. My friend Mladen Dolar, the old wise guy, was grown it at his home, uh, I never did I try, not even nothing. It's just I am naturally the way I am. Because <laughs> you know? I didn't, but how do you know it? And then the big debate was, is it cocaine or LSD? Like mm-hmm. the only debate was which, which type of. Mm-hmm. The last one, fascist, who knows? It's up to you. But the second one, millionaire, mm-hmm. well, fuck it. I wouldn't mind to like. <laughs> Should I pass a, a hat around that each of you throws? Maybe I approach that. I wouldn't mind that, you know. Okay. I would like to be, my idea is to be this type of a billionaire where, you know, you have 10 billions, mm-hmm. which you get through blood, uh, torturing, uh, exploiting others. But then you get a little bit of it back, and then you are the greatest humanitarian, and so on, you know. Uh, sorry, let's yeah, go so on. Yes, give me, give yeah. me some other so flowers. Uh, well, peak fascist, uh, a xenophobe in Lacanian pseudo-communist clothing, and then the, the slight. The, the, I tried to find nice ones too. So not as stupid or evil as detractors claim. I like this because it's still stupid and evil, <laughs> just not as stupid mm-hmm. and evil. But it's wrong theoretically. Don't you agree that even Adorno wrote this somewhere that to be really evil, you have to be bright. Mm-hmm. It's very mm-hmm. difficult to be really evil and mm-hmm. being stupid. Mm-hmm. So evil genius. Okay. Okay, evil genius. Here I tend to agree with, uh, with Hannah Arendt, you know, that... Uh, like, uh, you know who is for me, would you agree? For me, the true evil is Albert Speer. Mm-hmm. Not only because he is this Nazism with the human face, he apologized afterwards, but I read recently a good biography of him, where they, they convinced me at least, they claim 
he was an organizatorial genius. And Hitler's maybe wisest decision was already in, when in late 43, put him as the minister for armament and, and so on. He was organized things so well, you know that with all the carpet bombing, German military industrial production was record, the top in 44. He was, and the idea is that without him, the war would have ended immediately in 44 after. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if you look for who was guilty for that totally unnecessary additional year, it was Albert Speer. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I interrupt yeah, you. Yeah, Give yeah, me no, another, uh, another, another. Um, bizarre. Okay. Oh, and well, 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 well. and my, my favorite one, well, give my favorite one, given the whole cartoon thing, yeah. was Eastern European Daffy Duck. I'm not quite sure that I, I preferred once that I was uh, dressed even in an uglier way, I was compared to Eastern European State Trade Union functionary, you know, that guy who, you know, worker strike and I come there and say, but comrades, we are in power, how can you, you know, all those stupid communist sophisticated tricks, how, how can you strike against ourselves, you know, and so on. So uh, that's one. Uh -huh. What is Daffy Duck? Daffy that, Duck. That, uh, I mean, from your domain. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah my from domain. Donald and Daffy and all the gang. Ah. Cartoon female duck. Donald's female avatar type. Uh -huh. it's, but this is not uh, Disney. This is another series, I think. No, is this Daffy Duck more black or what? No, I'm no, confusing I so. something. No, no, I think she's just a regular. Sorry. It okay. is, yeah. Is you it? see, white, white liberal racist. You see, <laughs> she wanted to erase the, 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 the black aspects, you know. That's true. Oh, God. Okay. But you know whom I prefer, don't you? He's really nervous like me, that woodpecker or what, you know. Mm, who woodpecker. That's me, if you want <laughs> my correlate, you know. So, there was, uh, yeah, there's quite a bit of hate out there. Perhaps best to stick with the, uh, the interviewer, Kathy Newman's chosen adjective, which was flamboyant, which means flaming or blazing. So, incendiary. Yeah, it also yes. can mean be a nice way to say crazy, confused, mm -hmm. or whatever. Could be, could yeah, be. yeah. Um, so, Channel 4 News got about five minutes of you yesterday, which set off enough of a storm. We have another two hours, and the title is. Surplus value, surplus enjoyment, surplus knowledge. So Thanks very know, much. But, thank but you. you know, I'm sorry, I didn't want to go here into all that. Uh, uh, why I am accused? Ah, you want to be the one who can control me. <laughs> Admit it that you have one dream, at least it's my dream, that you would like to sit there if the chair would have been like, you know, the famous two chairs in the limousine in Goldfinger where you have then that red button, you know, when I talk too much, you press it and... <laughs> okay, uh, sorry, but uh, where I really agree with you, again, read her book on, on, on cartoons. I think that precisely because they appear slightly stupid and so on, you learn, like, things that, things about brutality, aggressivity of everyday capitalism, this is one of the aspects which <coughs> would have been too brutal, cannot be put into with real actors. You can say, stage it much more openly in cartoons. And what I especially like, listen, Esther, do you have a soft spot for them? I'm not saying it's a great movie, but the one with, uh, with who was the guy I forgot, 
about, uh, you know, it. It's even with the leftist, oh my God, it takes place in LA, early 50s. Still, there are still streetcars. It's such a well-known movie where the guy, is it even, not Anthony Hopkins who, an ordinary private detective who is hired by a rabbit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I like? This combination of like real figures, real in the sense of real actors, and cartoon figures. I always like my preferred prefer scene in movies are those where, although let's say it's all real, but at a certain point, the rules of the game change. And again, although it's reality, we are in the universe of cartoons. That's why I admit one of my uh, dirty, guilty pleasure scenes. Although they are disgusting for the first two thirds, but especially Home Alone 1 and 2. You remember, especially in 2, when the action moves to this final confrontation, we are in this crazy cartoon universe. You remember when a guy, uh, his head is burning, so he puts his head into the toilet, but the evil child put gasoline there, so his head explodes. And what I like is then he just comes out with a burnt head. You know, it's indestructible, absolutely. And uh, not only there, uh, general, you know, it's very easy with this virtual technology, whatever, to, to shot, to, to recreate reality with artificial effects, you know, like, we know, for example, if you saw that stupid uh, ancient Rome movie uh, with Russell Crowe, uh, 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 Gladiator, we know that all those arenas were really empty. All the thousands of people were put in digitally and so on. That's easy, but I find it artistically much more interesting, the opposite thing, which is that uh, not that it's fiction, but you experience it as reality, but that it's reality and you experience it as, fi as fiction. This seems to me a, a, a much more interesting procedure. Okay, losing time, uh, because I must uh, apologize today, I will have to disappear at four. So again, I will, but so there is some theory here. No, is it possible maybe, ah, I am allowed to draw here, I think. No, no, so that, no. <laughs> but what is then this? Yes, this is to drone. This is not, no, this is not a screen. Look, it's fixed. Wait a minute. Yes, I can. Okay, I will. Maybe just the scheme of this course. Okay, let me begin with a scene from a movie, which is, I think, Alfred Hitchcock at his most Marxist. I quoted already this in some of my books, but I wasn't aware of the Marxist dimension of it. Uh, Trifot, in his book of Conversations with Hitchcock, uh, 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 reports how Hitchcock told him that he was always dreaming of shooting a scene, but he never did it. And I think he, Hitchcock, was right not to do it, because it would have been too vulgar, too direct, staging the fantasy of Hitchcock too openly, here is the scene that Hitchcock wanted, he claimed, claims to insert in North by Northwest. I quote, 
I wanted to have a long dialogue between Cary Grant and one of the factory workers at the Ford plant. As they walk along the assembly line, behind them a car is being assembled piece by piece. Finally, the car they've, be, they've seen being put together from a simple nut and bolt is complete with gas and oil all ready to drive off the line. The two men look at each other and say, isn't it wonderful? Then one of them opens the door and of course a corpse dropped out. This is the Marxist surplus at its purest. Like, you've seen everything assembled together. Where did the corpse come from? I think this corpse as surplus is precisely the objective, not so much objective, counterpoint of subject. We have here, ah, you prefer me to use this one. Ah, screw you. I mean, like, I want a, a big one. You are giving me a small one. Sorry? Ah, it is. Okay, I'm very sorry. No, 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 it's okay. I'm very sorry. But I noticed how you see fascist reaction at work. Now the hint is also no red here. It has to be black. This was noted. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, let's go on. So uh, I think... This is how, here you have, it's a wonderful simple scene, production process out of nowhere, uh, uh, a surplus is generated and this surplus is precisely subject in the guise of its opposite, of, in the guise of object. So my point is that, <coughs> sorry, we have surplus value, then this is well known, I hope you know it. Then we have surplus knowledge, and here I wasn't clear yesterday. The beauty is that I think Lacanian conceptual machinery works here very well to explain precisely the difference between traditional knowledge, even today's New Age knowledge, and science. It's a different type of surplus. In traditional knowledge, surplus is what we usually call, it's still knowledge, Gnosticism. What's the basic premise of Gnosticism? Our ordinary reality and the objective scientific or common sense knowledge related to it is not all. There is a higher mystical, speculative, uh, theosophic, whatever type of knowledge. So this is the traditional universe. We have ordinary knowledge, reality, there is another higher kind of knowledge. Uh, in science, it is not like that. There, it's not simply an exception, but the surplus is inscribed into the very ordinary knowledge as always more, always more. Knowledge is never definitive, you know who knows what science will discover, and so on and so on. So it's precisely what Lacan would have called from the universal masculine structure of universality with exception. We have ordinary knowledge about the world, universal, everything, nature, and then some exception, metaphysical, whatever, different type of knowledge. While what science opposes to this, again, is a surplus which is inscribed into 
the very knowledge about reality, which you know, it's always more, you, we always have to uh, discover a new truth and so on. Which is why, uh, uh, as, uh, as Lacan already pointed out, something happens with this surplus element in capitalism, the, to put it very simply, the surplus becomes accountable. You can count it, you can measure it. Before, sur the, what is the classical form of surplus uh, prior to, uh, to uh, commodity logic, to capitalism? It's simply, let's say, something erratic. When you see someone, my God, it's not just what I see, it's something more that uh, is undescribable, cannot be quite quantified. Maybe the big revolution of capitalism is precisely that surplus can be quantified. So we have surplus knowledge, which again, uh, uh, in ordinary or pre-modern universe, is a special type of knowledge, a deeper knowledge, whatever. And then we have the uh, properly scientific surplus, which is precisely the, the interminable process of scientific, of scientific research, of scientific uh, uh, discoveries, and so on and so on. So we have surplus knowledge, we have surplus value, and we have, of course, uh, uh, surplus enjoyment, which, just to recapitulate what I was saying yesterday, surplus enjoyment is... Uh, is again, it's not something more in the sense of beyond ordinary pleasures, there is some enjoyment. No, to get at it, you have precisely to, to reduce things. For, uh, this is the basic Freudian definition of drive and the pleasure it brings. As Lacan put it in very simple terms, uh, oral drive does not strive for an object. For example, when a baby is sucking mother's breast, ordinary pleasure satisfaction is the milk. You are hungry, you get the object. But the enjoyment proper is the satisfaction brought by the very act, repeated act of uh, uh, sucking the breast and so on and so on. So it's in the... So uh, this, again, which, to put it in another way, means, and I think, maybe I'm wrong, I'm jumping too quickly here, but I think that this is the big difference between, let's say, in a very global way, Spinoza and Hegel. For Spinoza, the obstacle is always external. For Spinoza, as he puts it repetitively, every entity tends towards expanded assertion of its power, and the reason of its failure is always that there is another external counterpower. Uh, Alain Badiou, here I again very respectfully disagree with him, uh, uh, try to think in the same way death. For him, death is totally external to the living being, at least to the human being. It's not an inherent obstacle, we just die, and it's totally meaningless. 
Okay, in a short text on this published, I think, on the Verso website. Uh, but you even uses this wonderful joke about Monsieur La Palisse. You know, this, uh, the whole series of French jokes about uh, an idiot, no? Or what is told about him. And uh, one of the proverbs or statements is, uh, 10 seconds before his death, Monsieur La Palisse was still alive, no? <laughs> like, his point being that, yes, that is something like this. It's not, it was already all pointing towards that. Death just happens from the outside. Now, but you would have probably lynched me for that. But I claim, I hear respectively in a Hegelian way, disagree. I think that what Badiou, but I don't have time to go into it today, what Badiou calls infinity or immortality is strictly a phenomenon available only to mortal beings. Immortality is the very form of death drive. This brings me to another much more important thing that uh, uh, how is transcendence born? How does it emerge? Through an obstacle. We have a living entity, which may be still, although I don't think they exist, a Spinozian one, just uh, striving towards what Spinoza calls conatus, uh, which is more kind of an extension of power, and so on, and so on. And maybe I've already talked about this, but I cannot resist this evil remark. <laughs> I never understood it, although it can be explained. Why is, by many people, Spinoza consider almost a philosophical saint, you know. Whatever you do, you don't touch Spinoza. Is this almost divinity, Althusser, Deleuze, name them. No, I, I think, I don't know if I already told you the story, I must apologize if I did. Once I was some 10 years ago already probably at a conference on Spinoza in LA, and there was a lady there, totally fanatically Spinozian, I'm not uh, anti-feminist here. Uh, usually women are more critical towards Spinoza. Usually men are more stupid Spinozans. But she said, because we debated that passage towards the end of uh, uh, Tractatus uh, Theologico-Political Treatise, where Spinoza, to explain his basic premise that right is might, what do we have to write to? is grounded in how much Conatus life power assertive you have. And Spinoza gives the example of men and women and claims this is why the fact that women have much less social power means that they have less right and it's totally normal. He justifies this. And the poor lady said, isn't this crazy? It is as if someone else has written this. This is totally against Spinoza. No, it's not. It totally fits Spinoza, I claim. What, uh, so again, we have this idea that the limit of an entity is always external. I, every entity strives towards expansion, assertion, limit, or as Spinoza uh, puts it in another passage of his ethics, no entity disintegrates, uh, falls apart immanently. It's always an external obstacle. While for Hegel, it's the opposite. But it's not some, some 
this, uh, some stupid death drive in the sense of, oh, I want to destroy myself. No, Hegel has a much nicer version here of death drive. It's this one. Let's say again, returning to what I said one minute ago, I, I, ha I am this Spinozian entity. I'm just caught in interaction with other entities. Well, we all strive to expand our power. And then I stumble upon an obstacle that I cannot bypass. And the way I do it is that, you know, whenever you have an obstacle, as a reaction to an obstacle, you go into transcendence. It's always, even with love relations, why do we have all that bullshit, poetry, and so on and so on? Because you cannot do it directly. So this would be the Hegelian insight that obstacle is not simply an obstacle. Creativity, the excess of creativity, emerges precisely out of, if I may put this slightly naive term, out of a creative reply to an obstacle. And so again, I'm here unfortunately on, on Hegel's side. So again, today, now, I want to elaborate a little bit the, ah, yes, sorry, another point. So I said three types of surplus. Surplus enjoyment, which can also be called, although it's not exclusively that, uh, uh, enjoyment in pleasure. Surplus value and surplus knowledge. Now, I'm so sad, okay, read my next book or be here in July on my other seminar where I'm really going detailing this. Uh, in the book that I mentioned yesterday, Capitalist Unconscious, Samo Tomšić, he develops very well one point, that we should not read <coughs> Marx's notion of surplus value, exchange value, and so on and so on, as some kind of a secondary alienation, you know, for example, that in a natural economy, money is not a self-goal. People just exchange, like in a normal economy, I do something, I give it to others so that I get from there with money or without another, uh, another uh, use value and so on. And then money, but capitalist money, money which engenders money, is then some kind of a unnatural perversion where money, instead of being just a mediator, uh, becomes, uh, 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 how do you put it, self-track in English, self-goal, self-aim, whatever. Sorry? End in itself, sorry, that's it, yes. An end in itself. Uh, but I think that this is not Marx's position. Marx is not claiming that we have some basic material level of use value production, which gets later then through exchange uh, inverted into. No, a gap is there from the very beginning. Marx's thesis is that even in the most elementary exchange, use value, and so on, even not exchange, there is already a gap which is there. You know how I can just give you a hint how this works? Uh, uh, for Marx, 
That's why capitalism is the first step towards liberation. Because in capitalism, again, profit, more money, becomes the, the end in itself of production. But for Marx, communism is not a return to like normal state of things where production only aims at satisfying our needs. No, Marx explicitly said that the point of communism is that production explodes beyond needs. Production, development of productive forces becomes an end in itself. And Marx even uses here a beautiful Hegelian reversal where he says that in capitalism already. It may appear that we produce in order to satisfy our needs. But Marx says that the general social logic behind is the opposite one, that uh, the development of human needs is just a kind of a, following a kind of a Hegelian list, der Vernunft, cunning of reason, is just a kind of a triggering mechanism whose real aim is to expand our productive capacities, and so on. So again, uh, uh, Marx's point is not to, he is much more almost idealist, but it's not really idealism here. His point is not this classical anti-alienation point to reduce these perversions, like, oh my God, instead of doing things in order to get pleasure, you get pleasure out of just doing things, doing things or earning money becomes an end in itself, but we must return to a natural state. No, Marx, the whole point of Marx is that a certain surplus is from the beginning in the labor process itself. Okay, I don't have time uh, to go into it now. I want to, so, okay, my last point. So these three surpluses, and uh, what is the place that they fill in? Sub, uh, it's the subject. I claim that surplus is strictly correlative to subject. It's clear even in commodity where exchange, where for Marx, uh, uh, surplus value is precisely what subjectivity contributes in the production process. And for Marx, it's clear that uh, Arbeitskraft, working force, I don't know, labor force, how you translate it, is precisely pure, substanceless, without substance, subjectivity. Now I want to shift it, but we will return imminently to this big topic, to a topic that I really like, which is <coughs> what does this mean for our concept of nature is a kind of a surplus already inscribed into nature. My final answer is yes, not in a new age idealist sense that there is already spirit in nature. I'm just claiming that and I'm here critical about, critically disposed against a certain, let's call it paradigm, which uh, so that people will not say that I'm not critical about Lacan, which you find already in, even in Lacan, at least up to a certain point. This opposition of a natural balance and 
sub subjectivity as the site of negativity, excess, and so on and so on. Uh, you know, uh, even the early Lacan, at least, who was very close to Sartre, we should never forget this, the secret of early Lacan is Sartre, uh, uh, often repeats this motive, how in nature there is sexual relationship, blah, 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 and human, human subjectivity is a kind of a perverse reversal of nature. Things are no longer natural, death drive, self-sabotaging, whatever. But I claim that, uh, that this notion of nature as some preceding homeostatic balance, which is then disturbed by through human hubris, is precisely the last idealist myth which is why, incidentally, also for me, this is the worst type of ecology, which this kind of anti-human hubris ecology, you know, we humanity exploited nature too much, disturbed its balance now. We have to pay our price to, uh, to mother nature and so on. I would like here to engage, it will take some time, but I think it's worth, in a critical reading of one of my teachers, Jacqueline Miller, and I think what he is doing is not only politically but also theoretically catastrophic in last years. Not only politically, he now even became openly the member of some support committee for Sarkozy's re-election or whatever. But, uh, okay, uh, Miller's thesis is that nature is today in disorder. Not because it overwhelms our cognitive capacities, like there is so much in nature we cannot ever know it, people knew this always, but because we are not able to master the effects of our own interventions into the course of nature. For example, who knows what the ultimate consequences of our biogenetic engineering or of global warming will be? The surprise comes from ourselves. It concerns the opacity of how we ourselves fit into the picture. The impenetrable stain in the picture is not some cosmic mystery like the explosion of a supernova. The stain is, are we ourselves, our collective activity. Against this background, one should understand Miller's nice formula. Il y a un grand désordre dans le réel. In simple English, there is a great disorder in the real. If you are Maoists, and Miller was long, long ago a Maoist, you immediately can detect here the echo of, for me at least, the most beautiful saying of Mao. There is a great disorder in heavens, so the situation is perfect. Uh, so, uh, that's how Miller characterizes the way reality appears to us in our time, in which we experience the full impact of two fundamental agents, modern science and capitalism. Nature as the real, in which everything, from stars to the sun, always returns to its proper place, as the realm of large, reliable cycles and of stable laws, this nature is gradually being replaced by a contingent real, real outside the law, real that is permanently revolutionizing its own rules, 
real that resists any inclusion into a totalized world, universe of meaning. Now, how should we react to such constellation? Should we assume a defensive approach and search for a new limit, a return to, or rather, the invention of some new balance? This is what so-called bioethics endeavors to do with, with regard to biotechnology. This is why I'm deeply suspicious of so-called bioethics. Biotechnology pursues new possibilities of scientific interventions, genetic manipulations, cloning, and so on. And bioethics endeavors then to impose some moral or whatever limitations on biotechnology. As such, I claim bioethics is not immanent to scientific practice. It intervenes into this practice from outside, imposing external morality onto it. So I think, if anything, bioethics is the betrayal of the ethics immanent to scientific activity, it's, which is the ethics of do not compromise your scientific desire, follow inexorably its path. Uh, and again, for me, a, a compromise, sorry if I repeat myself, but the line is crucial. An, a nice example of this compromise is for me, for example, the stance of Habermas and those others who see in brain sciences a threat to human identity. And it's a very sad reaction. Again, as I always repeat, no wonder that Habermas published, not wrote, because they just collected text, but nonetheless published a book together with the previous pope, Ratzinger. Because they, it's deeply ironic for me how the guy who claims to be the big philosopher of modernity, you know, his big motive is modernity as an unfinished project. We didn't yet go to the end. Plitz all of a sudden argues for certain limits, like don't play with our brains and so on too much because you may endanger our basic self-understanding of humans as free, responsible agents and so on and so on. But what should be the scientific answer to this? Of course, we should bear in mind all possible threats. But my God, I'm ready to go here to the end and say, but nonetheless, I want to know how my brain works. I want to know, are we really free beings or not? I want simply to know, is it true that all that I experience as my free decision is just uh, registering something which already happened independently of my decision at the neural level and so on and so on. So I claim that Habermas, although he provides a different transcendental, uh, transcendental uh, 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 argumentation, basically what his argument amounts to is the old conservative Catholic, mostly Catholic, wisdom of for our moral sanity, it's better not to know some things. The secret reasoning of Habermas, I claim, is if we probe too much into how our mind works, we may discover that we are not free. And if we discover this, 
it would have meant a catastrophe for our moral self-understanding. Like you can say, fuck it, it's all predetermined, so I'm not responsible, and so on and so on. So let's not probe too deep into that. I find not only from the scientific point, but even ethico-politically, such a limitation catastrophic. So, uh, uh, but uh, my point is how expand, how omnipresent is getting this logic of self-limitation, as if modernity immanently, scientific modernity, means some explosive expansion and let's not go to the end, we need a proper limit. As Lacan put it in his short booklet published by Verso here, I think, letter, a letter to religious people, something like that. Uh, uh, Lacan's point is precisely that here, it's incredible how some religious theorists quote this Lacan as his offering the hand of friendship to, to Catholics. No, he says there explicitly that re today more than ever, religion and psychoanalysis are mortal enemies. He absolutely rejects this line, but he says precisely this fear of how far will science go? Will it deprive us of all that makes our human life worth living, uh, poetry and so on, moral responsibility, that we should posit a limit. And I think that it's also catastrophic uh, to go uh, to follow this line in ecology, because this is how I understand Badiou, here I agree fully with him, when he wrote already a couple of years ago that uh, ecology is a new candidate for religion today. He didn't mean ecology is mystical and so on. His point was simply that the traditional function of religion was to set certain limits. You can do this, that limit. And today, insofar as, at least with most people, religion, although there are fundamentalist attempts, but religion is losing this ability. So what remains simply nature as the ultimate limitation? We cannot do this. We will disturb the natural balance and so on and so on. Uh, my, of course, my problem here, my answer, you may have known it, I'm repeating all the time, is simply that there is no natural balance. If there ever was a human projection, ideological projection, it's the idea of homeostatic nature. Or, as I like to say, if nature is our mother, it's a very bitchy, evil mother. <laughs> I mean, nature is full of mega imbalances, catastrophes. And the, the theory that I prefer of, you know, this eternal enigma, how did humanity arise out of apes, whatever nature, is there must have been some terrible catastrophe where something happened and so on. I always like this theory, although, I mean, some of the theories of how humanity emerged are wonderful because they are so comically ridiculous in their naivety. Like a great guy, he's not a total stupid, like Daniel Bennett develops the most stupid by a lavid that I read explanation of how we humans began to walk on two feet. You know what is his explanation? That 
those primordial apes, uh, I mean, prim apes which were to become human, were walking in those African savannas where grass is pretty high. So to communicate with each other, they had to jump up. And then you see the story. Some of them said, fuck it, I'm too lazy to jump up. Why don't I simply stand <laughs> on, my, on my two legs? This for me is like exactly the same logic as that of Jonathan Swift. I repeated this here often, you must remember it. In, not in Lilliputans, another Gulliver book, where he has this theory of origin of language that in the beginning people didn't yet have words. But they communicated so that they carried on their back small models of objects. Like, uh, this is, I go to my house, you made a sign go, and you showed the model of a house. But then, after some time, because humanity developed and so on, you know, this back with objects grew larger and larger till I like this naivety. Till one of them says, fuck it, it's too heavy. Why, why don't we re replace these objects with words, you know? But you see the jokes, it's circular, no? I mean, uh, uh, like, uh, you, all these type of explanations already presuppose that you are within the symbolic horizon. Which is why uh, uh, here I admired really Stephen Jay Gould, the one who dropped that, the, uh, unfortunately, the great evolutionary biologist, who, and this is why there is such animosity against him with all the other big names, Dennett, Stephen Pinker, and so on. His idea was, and I think it's very Lacanian one, that language did not develop as part of simple process of adaptation, you find this stupidity even with Friedrich Engels in this, the role of labor of, you know that. Engels says that first there was labor, people collaborated, and, my God, is this so naive, and at some point they discovered that that collaboration is so complex that in order for collaborative labor to work, we have to communicate, I have to, <laughs> So, you know, it's again this absolute naivety. No, his idea, I think it's wonderful, is that language emerged as a pure nonsensical byproduct. We don't know what, something went wrong. And this, theor this theory is today taken very seriously, that, that in, for in different type of adaptation, something happened without, and so that it was absolutely a contingent excess surplus excess, which then became refunctionalized. We talk, we collaborate better, and so on and so on. But again, it was, and I'm here back to the topic, uh, to the topic of surplus. It was pure, meaningless surplus. And even every intelligent Darwinian will tell you, Lacan here refers to good Darwinians, that Darwin is not Lamarck. Lamarck has this stupid utilitarian teleology. For example, uh, he claims, how do you call it, what do horn or what do those deer animals have? Not that, that they were, they needed this to, I don't know what, to kill the enemy, to kill an animal, food. So gradually, the horns, so how do you call them? The, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gradually they emerged, you know. So, no, uh, what, uh, what, uh, what uh, Lacan 
uses exactly the same word as good. The problem of human being is not, I want to do something, I don't have uh, the organ for it, and then through gradual adaptation or whatever, this organ develops. No. Lacan says the original situation of not only human being, of an animal, is that through evolutionary confusion, genetic mess, we have too many organs. We don't know what to do with them. And then, secondarily, it's what Gould described in a wonderful way as exaptation, as opposed to adaptation. There is a surplus, maybe it's what meant for something, but it either it emerged simply through some genetic confusion, or it served one old purpose and it's no longer of any use, and then it's transfunctionalized, it's kidnapped for another purpose. So the idea that I like here, and you find it in, with serious Darwinists, is that it's not humanity, everything serves its function and so on, sorry, uh, nature, animals, with humans, we have access and so on. No, the basic mechanism of evolution is access. You have things which serve nothing, and then, secondarily, you try, to, uh, you, try, you try to make use of them. That's how evolution works. I think I already used years ago, you were not here, uh, even art develops like this. I used years ago a beautiful example uh, of these totally vulgar connections. For example, I hate him, he was a fascist composer, literally, Giacomo Puccini. You know that? The last letter he wrote when dying in Geneva was, you know, in 23 or 4, uh, Mussolini regime just established was in a deep crisis because who was it? Matteo, Matteotti or who? The last socialist member of parliament was murdered by fascist thugs. So there was an outcry in all of Italy and Mussolini seriously thought that he will lose power. But then the good right-wing intellectuals, artists, Pirandello and so on, all wrote a letter to Mussolini, no, we stand with you. Among them, Puccini also <laughs> wrote the letter. But what I'm saying is this. You find around 1900, 1900 year, a change in his, the structure of his arias. Arias are usually just two to two and a half minutes. Now, we can engage in some pseudo-Adornian speculation. Yes, this was because, you know, the modernist disintegration of large organic totalities. No, he wanted money and the early recordings, the length was two and a half minutes, something like that. So he did it and so on. But again, this does, you know, what fascinated me is this, how a totally external mechanical effect can produce much more serious, great artistic, genuine effects. For example, I'm sorry, another story if I tell it to you, maybe you know it. The biggest revolutionist opera staging, at least in Germany, was when Bayreuth reopened with Wagner staging in 1950, and it was over with that Viking kick. You know those helmets with Horn. Ah, this is a beautiful story. I read it. Uh, you know that even today we think that this is some kind of a historical fact that primitive Viking, Vikings had, how do you call it, not horn, helmets, sorry, 
with this, how do you call this, horns or what? Yeah, yeah. Do, and that Wagner just in his obsession with uh, uh, great Germanic past copied it. No, Wagner invented it. There are absolutely no proofs, no drawings, nothing that before Wagner's operas there were any Vikings with these horns or whatever. It's pure Wagnerian invention. Okay, let's go on. So, uh, 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 it was the big revolution towards this ascetic staging. You know, almost empty stage, just some like uh, runes, the ancient Celtic, uh, Celtic big stones and singers dressed in kind of almost ancient tunics and so on. It's a great revolution, books are written, what this meant and so on. Well, I don't know what it meant, but I don't know how it came to be. Bayrot in 1950 was bankrupt, they didn't have any money. The only thing they had was that Siemens or one of the big electro companies which started to function again properly offered Bayreuth a lot of as much as they want free electricity. And that's it. But you, you see, this is a nice example that Marx would have liked. How, how uh, you can describe it quite adequately in immanent terms. It functions. It is a great revolution. It's even a crucial step in de-fascizing, how should I put it, in, in, in kidnapping Wagner from the hold of fascist statements. But nonetheless, the immediate cause was a totally ridiculous one. So again, let's go on. What I'm saying here is that there is a surplus in surplus in the sense of an element which cannot, which is not, that there are too many things in nature. Again, adaptation is not, oh my God, I need that. No, adaptation is, okay, there are many things, I don't know what to do with them, so my God, let's try this, let's try, uh, let's try that, or whatever. Uh, now I will do a, a slightly boring thing to, uh, boring thing to, the, to, describe to you where Miller is wrong even more. It will be a long two pages quote from Miller, but it's from a programmatic text for a new congress of his Lacanian school, which was dedicated to very bombastic title, The Real for the 21st Century. Oh my God. <laughs> okay. Uh, please listen carefully. It's simple. Quote, long quote from Miller. There is, this is something indicated by Lacan's examples to illustrate the return of the real in the same place. His examples are the annual return of the seasons, the spectacle of the skies and the heavenly bodies. You could say, based on examples from all antiquity, Chinese rituals, of course, used mathematical calculations and so on. You could say that in this epoch, the real as nature has the function of the other of the other. That is to say that the real was itself the guarantee of the symbolic order. The agitation, the rhetorical agitation of the signifier in human speech was framed by uh, the web of signifiers fixed like the heavenly bodies. Nature, this is its very definition, is defined by being ordered. 
that is, by the conduct of the symbolic and the real. To such an extent that, according to the most ancient traditions, all human order should imitate natural order. The real invented by Lacan is not the real of science, it is a contingent real, random, inasmuch as the natural law of the relations between the sexes is lacking. It is a whole in the knowledge included in the real. Lacan made use of the language of mathematics, the best support for science. In the formulas of sexuation, for example, he tried to grasp the dead ends of sexuality in a weft of mathematical logic. This was like a heroic attempt to make psychoanalysis into a science of the real, in the way that logic is. But that can be done without imprisoning jouissance in the phallic function, in a symbol. It implies a symbolization of the real. It implies referring to the binary, binary, man, woman, for this Miller deserves death penalty. I mean, he speaks like Judith Butler here. Man, woman is a binary. No, it's not, but okay, sorry. As if living beings could be partitioned so neatly when we already see in the real of the 21st century a growing disorder of, of sexuation. This is already a secondary construction, Lacan's formulas of sexuation, that intervenes after the initial impact of the body and la langue. Lacan's term la langue for language as the real, prior to meaning just play of obscene uh, significations and so on which constitutes a real without law, without logical rule. Logic is only introduced afterwards with the elucubration, the fantasy, the subject supposed to know, and with psychoanalysis. Until now, under the inspiration of the 20th century, our clinical cases, as we recount them, have been logical clinical constructions under transference. But the... <coughs> Cause-effect relation is a scientific prejudice supported by the subject supposed to know. The cause-effect relation is not valid at the level of the real without law. It is not valid except with the rupture between cause and effect. Lacan said it as a joke. If one understands how an interpretation works, it is not an analytic interpretation. In psychoanalysis, as Lacan invites us to practice it, we experience the rupture of the cause-effect link, the opacity of the link, and this is why we speak of the unconscious. I'm going to say it in another way. Psychoanalysis takes place at the level of the repressed and of the interpretation of the repressed, thanks to the subject supposed to know. But in the 21st century, it is a question of psychoanalysis exploring another dimension, that of the defense against the real without law and without meaning. Lacan indicates this direction with his notion of the real, as Freud does with his mythological concept of drive. The Lacanian unconscious, that of the late Lacan, is at the level of the real, let us say, for convenience, below the Freudian unconscious. Again, here I start shooting. Lacan regresses here to the worst of Jungianism, you know, 
This is the standard Jungian criticism of Freud, that Freudian unconscious is too close to logic, it's just a surface unconscious, too rational, but there is a deeper, really crazy unconscious, and so on. Therefore, back to Miller, in order to enter into the 21st century, our clinic will have to be centered on dismantling the defense, disordering the defense against the real. The transferential unconscious in analysis is already a defense against the real. And in the transferential unconscious, there still is an intention, a wanting to say, a wanting you to tell me, when in fact, the real unconscious is not intentional. It is encountered under the modality of that's it, c'est comme ça in French. That's how it is, which you could say is like our amen. Various questions will be open to us, for us, at the next Congress. This is introductory address to Congress. The redefinition of the desire of the analyst, which is not a pure desire, not a pure infinity of metonymy, but the desire to reach the real, to reduce the other to its real, and to liberate it of meaning. I would add that Lacan invented a way of representing the real with the Borromean not. We will ask ourselves how valid this interpretation is. Lacan made use of the not to arrive at this irremediable zone of existence where one can go no further with two. The passion, Lacan's passion for the Borromean not, led Lacan to the same zone as Oedipus et Colonus, where one finds the absolute absence of charity, of fraternity, of any human sentiment. This is where the search for the real stripped of meaning leads us. I mean, this line of thought, I hope it was relatively clear and simple, is something for which, if we were to live in people's democracy, Miller would end up in Gulag. Uh, without any possibility of uh, getting out of it. Why? What do I found problematic in this passage? Problems begin with the notion of the real as nature in its regularity, as that which always returns at its place. This sounds understandable. You know, in pre-modern society, ancient Egypt and so on, uh, the ultimate point of reference was the regularity of bodily movements. That star will appear every morning at that place, uh, winter, fall, seasons. They, uh, there is a higher regularity in nature, which should be also this heavenly regularity, the ultimate point of reference for our human universe, and so on. Uh, but uh, I think Miller misses something here, which uh, he gives a well-to-simplified reading of this pre-modern regularity. As it was noted by Lacan, for example, for ancient Aztecs and other civilizations of sacrifice, the natural real was not simply a regularity that nothing can, that cannot be perturbed. Ancient Aztecs organized human sacrifices to guarantee what? And that's what Lacan noted. It's a wonderful deal. Why did ancient Aztecs sacrifice people? Not to 
not to not to fight against chance, not to make it sure when there was a draw that there will be rain or whatever. But that's so beautiful. They did it precisely to guarantee that the most ordinary and expected thing will happen. They sacrificed people to sustain the very regularity of nature. Human lives have to be sacrificed so that nature will rotate in its regular way, so that sun will rise in the morning and so on and so on. You can find this in what we know about ancient Aztec and so on mythology. Again, their great fear was if we humans do not perform our rituals, sun will not rise and so on and so on. We will, so uh, again, the real of the natural order where everything returns at its own place already relies on a symbolic intervention. It's not just a natural real which is there on which we can rely. It's not independent of us. We have to sustain it through our rituals and sacrifices. And there is a key passage from this real sustained by symbolic sacrifice to the real of modern science, the Newtonian real of natural laws, of the network of causes and effects. It's it only this real, the scientific real, which really turns around by itself. I mean, you don't have to sacrifice your, let's say, your, your mother-in-law, although I would like to do this, so that sun will rise next morning. <laughs> Why not? But okay, another story. Uh, uh, so here again, just one shorter this time, quote from Miller. With the infinite universe of mathematical physics, nature disappears. It becomes solely a moral instance. With the philosophers of the 18th century, with the infinite universe, nature disappears and the real begins to be unveiled. Fine. But I have been asking myself, Miller still, about the formula there is a knowledge in the real. It would be a temptation to say that the unconscious is at this level. On the contrary, the supposition of a knowledge in the real appears to me to be an ultimate veil that needs to be lifted. If there is a knowledge in the real, there is regularity, and scientific knowledge allows prediction. It is so proud of prediction insofar as this demonstrates the existence of loss. And it does not require a divine utterance of this loss for them to remain valid. It is by way of this idea of loss that the old idea of nature has been preserved in the very expression, the loss of nature. So again, for Miller, even without gods and so on, the, the Newtonian nature remains the same. It's still nature uh, regulated by eternal, by eternal laws. Things always function in the same way and so on and so on. But I think Miller again proceeds here too fast. The break between traditional nature and nature of modern science is more radical. In contrast to traditional nature, whose regular rhythm is supposed to point towards a deeper cosmic sexualized meaning, day and night as the regular exchange of masculine and feminine principles and so on. That's crucial for me. The traditional real, pre-modern, 
yin yang and so on is always a sexualized real uh, uh, a meaningful real something which that's the whole point of tao te king yin yang and so on that it's not just blind mathematics it's a global guaranteed stable order of meaning while scientific laws of nature are themselves contingent there is no deeper meaningful necessity sustaining them when miller says that today uh, we encounter the real under the modality of that's it sekomsa but this is precisely how newtonian laws function when newton proposes his whatever formula it's wrong to ask what cosmic harmony is expressed in this way is this a reflection of some deeper uh, cosmic meaning no it's not although i know very well that newton himself was ambiguous here you know that he spent much more time on theosophical questions and so on than on science so that's my first problem with miller that he brings too much together under the sign of regularity pre-modern notion of natural order which is always already a symbolized order order of meaning grounded in a sacrificial gesture and uh, on the other hand the scientific order of nature but i have another problem with miller miller's search for the pure real outside the symbolic a real not yet stained by the symbolic that he attributes to lacan i think has to be abandoned tragically miller gets clear too close to deleuze in a very deleuzean way repeating literally a formula from anti-oedipus miller miller speaks of the true pre-oedipal unconscious beneath the freudian one as if we first have the pure pre-oedipal movement of drives the direct interpenetration of signifying material and jouissance this is what lacan means by la longue and as if it is only in a logical if not temporary afterward that this flux is ordered ordained by symbolic elucubrations forced into the symbolic straitjacket of binary logic of paternal law of castration of normative structure of two sexual identities and so on and so on according to miller even lacan's formulas of sexuation fall into this category they are an attempt to grab to symbolize the real imposing on it a binary logic and so on and so on miller's point is then that today in the 20th first century we see that uh new forms of sexuality transgender all that stuff that this binary that sex itself becomes a totally irregular sex sex as the real with no fixed symbolic identities and so on and so on from my point is here very simple my reproach to miller it would be very good for him to read lacan a little bit because from a lacanian standpoint something is terribly wrong with this line of reasoning miller passes directly from the real as nature which follows its regular rhythm or its loss 
to the pure lawless real, lawless, without law. What goes missing here is, I think, precisely what Lacan calls the real. You know, now we come to the crucial, even philosophical point. For Lacan, no, what Miller does here is something against which Lacan warns us all the time. This idea that the real has some kind of a substantial presence outside the symbolic, is this kind of a totally lawless confusion of drives, whatever, and then our reason, our logos, not only in the sense of rationality, but also in the sense of simply symbolic articulation, is full of just these desperate secondary attempts to symbolize, to make sense of, to introduce order into this real. I claim uh, this real would have been something like the Kantian thing in itself, a pure irregular outside. And uh, I claim that, now, I know I often made this point, but it has to be repeated here, because as you will immediately see, it has a crucial also theoretical consequence, sorry, political, that uh, uh, for, uh, for Lacan, the real is not some substantial presence outside the symbolic. The real is an inherent obstacle impossibility inscribed into the symbolic order itself. The real is totally immanent. The, leer, the real is something on account of which every symbolization fails. But it's not an external obstacle. It's the, in this sense, for Lacan, sexual difference is not binary. It's not male-female. But it's a certain antagonism which, as such, cannot be symbolized. But it doesn't pre-exist symbolization. It is the real is the immanent impossibility of the symbolic order itself. Lacan says this literally. Le réel est une impasse de formalisation. The real is a deadlock of formalization. That's Lacan's best formula. And that's how, how, uh, that's how uh, we should read formulas of sexuation. Again, you know, I often develop this point. I will not now go into it in detail. You can find it in my books and so on all around. How uh, antagonism is primordial, antagonism in possibility, and uh, it doesn't have a clear, real, external point. This is the worst of postmodernism. Sometimes Nietzsche writes like this, as if the real is the truth too strong for us. If you look at it directly, you get blind. We just can grab it from this, from that perspective, and so on and so on. No, the real is just an imminent impossibility. And when we ascribe to this impossibility an external cause, this is maybe the most elementary gesture of fetishism. And I can give you a very simple political example here, anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is precisely this. In order to avoid the imminence of social antagonism, you project its cause onto an external disturbing element, the Jews who introduce antagonism and so on and so on and so on. But there is something 
you find all this in practically all of my books. But uh, what is more important, what I want to develop here, is two things. How, first, uh, Miller, in order to pursue this line of thought, all of a sudden becomes Butlerian, referring to Judith Butler. That is to say, he reduces sexual difference to a binary symbolic operation. Men do this, women do that, and so on. But what Lacan does in his formulas of sexuation is exactly the opposite. When Lacan speaks of male position, he doesn't describe a certain set of features, but just a certain deadlock. It's, or to put it in a, another way, at the level of social relations, and this is where things become, uh, where are we now? You know, I, I will do, oh my God, fuck, life is uh, running. Okay, let me go on. With Miller, uh, uh, the most dangerous point is how Miller extends this logic also to capitalism. For him, again, we are passing today from sexual difference, and his idea is that sexual difference is gradually undermined, no longer two sexes, but just crazy multiplicity of sexual identities. And for him, it's the same with capitalism. No longer binary logic, but just kind of a proliferation of multiplicities. Here comes the dangerous conclusion. Without antagonism, without any binary logic, and so on and so on. And I think, uh, the whole, so in other words, when Miller inscribes science and capitalism into this logic of, uh, logic of pure, real, outside symbolization, and so on and so on, he simply accepts late capitalism's ideological self-description. This is how capitalism today, now I will say something very nasty, although she is still my personal friend, the ideological descriptions of today's late capitalism is Judith Butlerian, you know. No binaries, just immanent self-construction, outside any symbolic law, and so on and so on. I claim, no, I claim that this precisely is the ideological deception. This idea of today's capitalism, and it doesn't matter if you want to control it, or if you want, like some so-called accelerationists, like Negri and some others, who claim, no, the only way through capitalism is to, to abandon ourselves totally to this crazy, pure, real, beyond any symbolic loss, and so on and so on. No, I hear, I'm sorry, I remain here a traditional Marxist. This idea of capitalism where? It's this kind of flourishing multiplicity of identities. We are all capitalists, entrepreneurs of the self. There is no law. There is an injunction just to be, to be free. To, uh, uh, these are the beautiful uh, mottos of 68. Vivre sans ton mort. To live without that time. Jouir sans entrave. To enjoy without obstacles and so on. I think that what Miller misses is that the pure real that he describes, it's precisely an ideological mask which covers up the antagonism. Uh, that uh, precisely, uh, not only is this 
pure real, what Lacan describes as pure real, scientific or social or sexual, not only is it not really without law, but there is, okay, not a fixed law, but law in the sense of a certain basic antagonism which engenders this explosive multiplicity. You remember how before I mentioned the positive role of obstacle? Uh, it's precisely the obstacle in the sense of contradiction of capitalism which explodes this uh, crazy dynamic of capitalism. Miller totally obliterates this. And uh, even Marx is not, as I developed often, even Marx is not pure here. Because Marx accepts this logic of crazy capitalist dynamics, but he thinks that Capitalism, at a certain point, becomes an obstacle for these dynamics. So if we abolish capitalism, to put it very simply, we will get these dynamics at its even more crazy, you know. Then it will be true crazy creativity and so on. I don't think uh, this is the case. I think it's a, it's a big problem for us, more than ever, even to imagine a true post-capitalist society, because neither one nor the other of predominant models work. I don't believe in this Deleuzean notion of let's get rid of uh, capitalist. De this is Deleuze's notion that capitalist deterritorialization, because it's very strange that uh, Miller doesn't use here the term deterritorialization, because this is really what he means by this lawless real. Uh, uh, is just re-territorialized by capitalism, so we should destroy this re-territorialization to get pure deterritorialization, pure expansive multiplicity, or the opposite, let's call it more conservative logic, although you have leftist conservatives along these lines, who claim that no, that this radical modernization, uh, openness, no obstacles, it's a catastrophe that we have to invent a new limit, a new self-limitation. It can be nature, for other people it's a religion and so on. No, I claim the true answer is that this is the false opposition. That there already is, a, capitalism explodes all the time precisely in order to avoid the, 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 the impetus is given by its, uh, by, its, uh, by its immanent antagonism. Since I promised you uh, half an hour or whatever for debate, I will do the usual thing. Are you, most of you, at least in any contact with organizers, Burbeck here, like I try to at least pay for my sins, which are I'm talking too much and so on, uh, 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 by at least delivering the text. So is there any system here where I send the text that I have to someone and then all this crowd here can get access to it? Shall I send it to Madison or? Uh, yeah, you can send it to, to Madison. Okay, so that you know. Yeah, the Burbeck, this evening, I promise you, she will have the text where I go into what? I can tell you very quickly my point. My point is that 
I go into polemics with predominant version, which is that this multiplicity of capitalism is a form of universalized perversion, masochism, and so on. My thesis, I think it works much better, is that capitalism is split between two discourses, irreducibly. Hysterical discourse, which is this always more, expansion, and university discourse. So that the axis university hysteria is, or even to put it in terms, it can be even translated into the terms of classical uh, Frankfurt School. We have on the one hand this capitalist logic of incessant self-expansion and, and it's not the same logic, the logic of knowledge is power domination, which would have been the university discourse. And I think Capitalism has to oscillate all the time, not even oscillate, but it's like, it's like, it's like Mebius bent, you know, one turning into another. On the one hand, we have this incessant hysterical logic, I want more expansion, it's never that. On the other hand, we have the university knowledge domination logic. And it's interesting how often for example, the greatest danger of the last 50 years, I think, is that those who were followers of, not of Marxism, of critical theory, but not just Frankfurt School, uh, emphasized way too much, I claim, the logic of domination, the, the uh, university discourse aspect. You know, today's power, even now through internet control and so on, it's some totalizing uh, uh, knowledge, domination through knowledge. But I think it's absolutely crucial for, cap for capitalism also the other hysterical aspect. So now the problem is, and that would have been my final Trump card, and I doubt, I'm always surprised why Trump, it would be precisely vulgar at his level, didn't use this play with words, you know. I am the Trump card. I have a you say like this in English, no, Trump, the Trump card. Okay, we would be that, what then does, uh, what should be our answer to this? I claim the other axis, master analyst. That is to say that on the one hand, it's my madness, I will earn even worse designation uh, for this. On the one hand, progressive movement today should shamelessly return to a certain type of discourse of the master. And when people shout, I tell them, show me one modern, relatively successful radical movement uh, uh, from even minor figures, from Podemos to Syriza. To, uh, I had to laugh when a friend told me from Venezuela, but listen, you are too centralist European. We have genuine social mobilization in Venezuela, and I died laughing. I say, yeah, but what about the big fat guy on the top, you know, Chavez and so on. On the other hand, and that's what I really wanted to do, we don't have time, I wanted to develop the idea of a, something that would be the social application of an analytic discourse. And you know what I wanted to reread in this way? It's a totally crazy idea. When Lenin was close to his death, not yet incapacitated, he saw where things are moving. 
So his idea was to establish a kind of a, he has different names for it, like uh, 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 like uh, 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 contr control control committee or uh, another uh, 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 sorry I I try to find his term uh, yes central control commission and he was struggling with the right problem we need strong authoritarian party control but if it's that alone. It will be a catastrophe. So what kind of counter force to keep it in balance can we imagine? And it was incredible. I already quote this, but I was too stupid when I quoted it in my living at that times. I gave a too simplistic version. Uh, Lenin, now I got it what Lenin is saying, because it's incredible. He says it has to be an agency which is incredible, which may appear to know things better, but they really don't know it. <laughs> it's like analysts supposed to know. Then he says, it's not what they know. It's the way they act, maybe even jokes, all elusive and so on. It's absolutely incredible how he describes a body that should have acted like the analyst to the master. Not some stupid democratic counterpower but a kind of a eternal source of provocation, like the object A of the master. Do you really mean it? How do you know it? And so on. So I think that, uh, I think that uh, this will have maybe to be invented. Because to conclude, I don't know if I already mentioned this yesterday. I think this is, I think I mentioned it yesterday. I will nonetheless repeat it. This is for me maybe the most important trap today. Yes, I mentioned it yesterday. When things go wrong for the left in power, they always seek a solution in, oh, we were not enough connected with social movements, with social bad, uh, with social, our social base. We should keep that connection alive and so on and so on. But I claim this is just a way to avoid the basic fundamental question, which is how to change from within the state apparatus itself. You know, that's the tragedy of Syriza, for example. They now, that's where I don't agree with critics of Syriza who claim the government now lost its contact with uh, social base and so on and so on. For me, the problem is not this. The problem is the opposite one. Why do they need social base outside? Yes, immediately. Because they, do we even have a way to do this, and it's a great problem. I think that this idea that we should strive for a democratic left government, but it should be kept alive, uh, avoid uh, uh, alienation, avoid bureaucratization through permanent popular mobilization, and so on and so on. This formula absolutely doesn't work. In what sense? My great example here is Bolivia, with which I totally sympathize. As it was made clear to me by my good friend, by my good friends there from the top, Linera, vice president, if you have the state the same as we have it now, and if you then, then all of a sudden, because you have state power, the problem with the social movement is that they become an immense field of clientelism. That's what happened in Bolivia. That's the great catastrophe there. 
That all, yes, they have all these tribal social, but as Linera complained to me, they come here to La Paz, they spend money, and all they try to do is to get more money for that tribe. And it's an immense, ruthless competition, so that Linera told me, we need a very strong state to discipline this stupid uh, representative of social base or whatever. So again, the absolute question is, for me, not how to supplement parliamentary democratic state from outside with some social mobilization, but how to change in a more imminent way its functioning and to end up with a true horror. I don't mean this just to make it more democratic. I think that it's absolutely crucial. That's for me the big experience of today's people accuse me of being a fascist. Maybe I am, but I, this would be a self-characterization that I would have liked. Uh, Pro-refugee neo-fascist, how should I put it? That is to say, how to assert an efficient, even brutally strong state intervention that would have worked in a progressive way, even against the majority of the people. Sorry to tell you, but this is for me the primary task today in Europe. If you go for democracy, fine, because our democracies are nation-state democracies. This means there may be some exceptions and so on and so on, but the moment things will become real, the majority will be again. I know from, uh, to uh, conclude with some funny points, I know from my own, we are a small shitty country, but it's interesting what happened. You know, we were the bad guys who you built a wall, or uh, sorry, that wall of just of wire or whatever, no? Uh, but you know what was the problem? It was the dirty German game. Slovene diplomat. Uh, Angela Merkel made that kommt auf, wir schaffen es, come, we will do it. Then, within no longer, when it no longer functioned, Angela Merkel didn't want directly to renounce it and was putting, this was such a disgusting game, was putting extreme pressure on Slovenia, Croatia, now Macedonia, you stop them so that they can now play this disgusting game. Oh, again, old Balkan, those barbarians, wires. Fuck her, we put wires because discreetly Germans demanded, because Germans were breaking their own rules. They claim just let them through, then they started to stop them first in Austria, which only means for me that you cannot deal with the problem the way it is dealt with. It has to be done, that's why, more than ever, I will go to the end in my madness. I see the solution in militarization. Of course not uh, European army uh, killing or uh, building a wall against the immigrants. If I may be a little bit nasty, for this popular self-organization is quite enough. You know what horrible thing is now happening so that you don't have any illusions? They want to do it also in Slovenia now. They already are doing it in Croatia, Slovak Republic, and some other places. Here you have, fuck you, your self-organization of the people. Right-wing anti-immigrants organizing themselves as popular militias of self-defense, and they are cruising around the forest and catching immigrants and bringing them to the police. So when people tell me, are you crazy? You call the army. 
Well, I trust much more the army than police, and I will tell you something horrible, at least in some countries, in this specific tragic situation, I trust more police than ordinary people who get self-organized. So again, I'm not saying, you, you see, uh, what I mean by militarization is a large action. You establish bases in Syria, in Libya, whatever. You process refugees and you do it in a very brutal way, not towards the refugees. Uh, for me, the true target should be today city countries like my own, like, uh, but all this Visegrad ex-East European group. Baltic countries who even they're really not all of them, but some of them. In one of those countries, I forgot which one, they want against Russia NATO forces. So they put a couple of NATO battalions there. You know what happened a month or two ago? Was it in your newspapers? Discreetly, they protested that there are too many blacks in NATO forces and that they disturb their population and so on. So even there, they want the, the pure, you know, they want they want the pure. No, my problem is not some kind of a totally transparent government. My problem is a government which would be in a progressive sense strong, with strong executive privileges. Of course, it should definitely be controlled in some way and so on. No, but uh, I really worry without such a strong agency, I really worry what will happen with Europe. Okay, enough of provocations, so that I keep my word. We still have 20 minutes. Please, uh, you were the first. Please attack. Uh, who will run the show? You or you? Sorry? Yeah, I'll But the, the gentleman there already was raising his hand before, maybe. Are you Greek? Sorry? Ah, yeah, because in my racist imagination, many Greeks that I know are dressed like you. And, you know, my big motto is the only thing you can rely on in today's confusion are racist cliches. When I was in Ireland, I went to a pub. It was exactly as in Hollywood kids' films. People playing harmonica and singing and so on. Sorry, I talk too much, please. No, I'm not Greek, but um, yes. Uh, thank you for your interesting talk, Professor. It looks bad. Now, pull out the knife. <laughs> because when you begin like this... <laughs> Sorry, please. So, uh, I'm a student at Burbank, and uh, also got a background in sciences and physical sciences. Ah, the real sciences, not yes, nothing like us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, neurosciences, sorry. Uh, physics, physics. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> So my question is this, what is the materialist theory of subjectivity? Now, uh, this materialist theory of subjectivity has to contain, uh, connect the domain of physics on one hand yeah. uh, with the subject, since science is the study of the material universe. Yeah. So as such, since physics is the study of the material objects, the yeah. theory of the subject must conform to this criterion, yeah. uh, if we are to have a subject who knows. Yeah. But why do you connect? For me, sub subject in is one thing, subject who knows is another thing. I don't think that knowledge is something that we really spontaneously want. But okay, another point. Go on, please. So, I'm sorry. Please. So, uh, the subject is part of the material universe. 
Yeah. yeah. Okay. yeah. Uh, so the only possibility for this to occur is that somehow human subjectivity must be mediated in some way by technology. And, why, uh, sorry, why technology? Well, when te humans emerged so out of uh, apes, there was no technology. Well, well, subjectivity, we have the subject as part of the material universe. It's not outside of it. Yeah. 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 So we need a theory of the subject that is material. Uh, material in what sense? So that it, it explained how subjectivity emerges out of material world and, and as part of that world. Is this that no. you mean or something more? Something more probably, but it's the subject is actually material. So the only way that this can occur for me, yeah. if you want to agree, is yeah. that the subject itself, so there's many yeah. discussions about, so is yeah. the subject of the machine. Okay. That's so interesting. Why? Can you explain this? Because this presupposes that a living organism, and I'm not saying that my answer is no, just it's not self-evident, that a living being can be reduced to a machine also. Well, yeah, well, it's the, the subject, you know, the, the, in the sense of the, the Lacanian subject. Yes. You know, so if you can't, you start with Lacan and you also can you bit Hegel. Um, there's a passage in uh, book two of uh, Lacan's uh, yeah. seminars where he starts to describe um, the, what he asks the question directly, so what is born as is the nature of the subject? Yeah. And he asks this question, he's, he talks about like uh, some sort of, he relates it to some sort of ex machina, some sort of deus ex machina, he uses that phrase. I don't know if you're aware of that. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah. So and now we're in an era of artificial intelligence, for example, so we're considering machine subjectivity as well. So that, that's what kind of led me to making this conclusion that the subject itself is the subject of the machine. So, in a way, I agree with you. But sorry, finish your question. Yeah, so or did uh, you? Okay. Uh, so no, no. Yeah. It's a wonder. Sorry. Yeah. So, so. Uh, ultimately, uh, this 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 leads to um, this conception of a universal subject. So the principle of the universal subject comes about as a result of this interplay between the subject itself, subject of the machine mediated human subjectivity and this kind of master-slave dialectic via Hegel yeah. to arrive at the universal subject. And what do you mean by universal subject? I don't get it. The, uni the universal subject is like the kind of endpoint of this master-slave dialectic between man and machine to arrive at some sort of ultimate point. Uh, like yeah, yeah, yeah sorry. I got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. So, um, thanks again. Oh, thank you, but I will try to be as, it's really sad that we don't have, because admit it, this is a question, a modest answer would be between three and four hours. My but I will try to say this. Uh, you know, uh, I would put it like this. For some people, maybe it would have been even too idealist. I claim that to something happens with human subjectivity symbolic universe and so on. And to, for me, the first materialist question is how should nature be structured, material nature, so that something like human subjectivity is possible? Because I think that no amount of dialectical deduction and so on, no amount of evolutionary gradualism will enable you to begin with stupid, totally inert mechanic material objects and then somehow through complex integration to come to animality, to come to uh, human life. Because 
things get complex already with animality. I love reading modern biologists, like the one who is the grand old lady, I think she died, Lynn Margulis and others, who point out, and even some intelligent Darwinians have this idea that living being presupposes a certain temporal circularity. A living being means that something that is the effect of a process retroactively takes over the process itself. For example, I was so deeply fascinated by Lynn Margulis. She is famous for his, her, sorry, cell theory. She claims forget about animals uh, and plants. The basic magic of life is a cell. How? Nature self-organizes itself in such a way that a certain entity posits a limit between inside and outside. The big problem of self-organization is the skin, the limit. So that you say this is in, this is out. And the idea is that, okay, I will not go into it. My, okay, to cut a long story short, my point is that maybe I'm too naive speculative here that you have to go to quantum physics. That's maybe... Uh, 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 that's, that is the kind of the course, but sorry, I have to interrupt there as, as a yes. background in physics. In, in quantum physics, it's still a materialistic theory. It describes particles in terms of probability. That's correct. Oh, but, but not only the this. Subject, the subject-object relation, there is always the observer and the observed. So the subject-object relation is always conserved in every quantum physics experiment. Ah, no, no, wait a minute, now I'm not totally bluffing here. I spoke with many of them. It's true what you are saying, but nonetheless, I claim, and even you find this even with Niels Bohr, you, first, uh, the problem, the true problem of quantum physics for me is that uh, this... Uh, Probability is not just a cognitive probability, that it's an ontological probability. And point two, this, I developed this point widely in my books, this ontological probability means that nature in itself is not fully determined. It's not that things fully exist out there, we observers just cannot fully get to know them. The, the beauty of quantum physics for me is almost the opposite. What pre-exists the subject is some totally, not totally, relatively indeterminate oscillation, and it's only through the observer that this indeterminate oscillation collapses into uh, determinate thing and so on and so on. So in other words, I am not an idealist and I know very, I'm not talking here about, okay, I'll put it in another way. The big problem, I know that, uh, how do you call my God, this theory of not self-collapse, what's the term of this theory now, which tries to develop in an immanent way without uh, external observer, how a wave oscillation can collapse. You must know it if you are not totally idiots, I am now. <laughs> no, 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 the, the, uh, sorry? No, 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 the opposite. How? how you can get a collapse, but without, uh, without an observer, without an observer. I totally agree with you because I, I think it's absolutely crucial to emphasize that quantum physics is not 
a subjectivist <laughs> theory. It's not, ooh, some kind of observing ghost creates reality and so on and so on. It's not that. But nonetheless, it's also not naive. Rea- what fascinates me is this. What type of reality is described then? First, it's a reality in which, if I may put it in this way, possibility as virtual reality has a positive ontological status of its own. In our ordinary material reality, different things can happen. But when one thing happens, others fuck off or disappeared. Not in quantum physics. In quantum physics, now I'm talking in very abstract ontological terms. If you want to understand what a thing is, you have to include what it might have been but didn't and so on. In a way, in a way, variations, possibility has a certain... Okay, I don't want to get lost in this now. That would be my, my first answer. I don't... So now we come to the second point here. When you say materialism, yes, but what notion of matter? I think we should abandon this naive notion of matter, like, you know, small particles which run around in the void and so on and so on. The big lesson of uh, quantum physics for me is that, uh, how should I put it? Uh, But we all know this, that's the ABC that. Zero, even that comes the title of my book, less than nothing and so on. All this is not just our epistemological imperfection, but part of matter, part of reality. Matter is not just some little, little tiny particles running around there in some space and so on and so on. That matter, I'm not talking now, I'm not a physicist about antimatter and so on and so on. But for example, what absolutely fascinated me, like in intellectual, unfortunately, orgasm permanent, is this idea that I very clumsily probably resume in my big fat book of two vacuums. That is to say, the basic ontological paradox that if you imagine by vacuum a total emptiness zero level, that you already have to spend some energy to get at this. That is true. It's not as we think nothing costs nothing and then you have to add something. So I claim that without this type of ontological foundation, you cannot explain subjectivity. It's a big speculation. We may disagree. But when I agree with you, and I read now a wonderful book, I forgot the guy's name, it's one of these expensive books that academic publishers, I hate them publish, you know, <coughs> where it's, it's like soft cover, 300 pages, and it's 70 pounds, you know, those. Uh, and, but it's one on mechanism in early Hegel. And it demonstrates that Hegel became, in your sense, Hegel became Hegel when he abandoned this stupid romantic notion of lower level alienation mechanism and then higher level organicism and so on and so on. You know what Hegel already says in your sense? That we have this lively uh, 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 organic interaction, but how do we test to subjectivity in the sense of symbolic human being? only so that this lively organic process is brutally submitted to a mechanism. 
Language for Hegel is at its most elementary, precisely not a living organic entity, but a mechanism. And Hegel was always fascinated by this. For example, in an ingenious insight, he says, how wise was history so that as the universal language of Europe, it was Latin, not Greek, which was selected. Because precisely Greek, ancient Greek, was perceived as more organic, you know, all this Heideggerian mythology, while Latin was perceived as mechanic, drill, and so on. Hegel was always aware that the, the background of our free thinking is always an empty, blind mechanism. We have to rehabilitate mechanism, symbolic mechanism. This is, of course, the sense in which Lacan uses it, but precisely in its alienating force. It's not a mechanism which is organic part of ourselves, whatever. It's precisely something extremely disruptive. Language is, for Lacan, a kind of a stupid, I underline stupid, mechanical apparatus which takes over a living organism and so on and so on. So I know I didn't answer to you uh, in a satisfactory way, but just to reassure you, I am following very closely all this, uh, all, ah, sorry, I'm so stupid. The process is called decoherence, no? This process. And uh, there are attempts, but it's tricky. They don't work. The interest of decoherence theory is to formulate, you know, the big hope, you must know better than me, decades ago was string theory. I may be wrong, but the way <coughs> I get the simplified version from my spies in science departments is that string theory is now gradually losing ground. There are problems with uh, experimental verification. It's not only that they cannot do it, it's that they even cannot imagine a way how to do it. It's just a different reading. And it's, you pay too much of, you get rid of certain paradoxes, but then you have to introduce, you know, it's like, how the guy called, uh, a little bit too much of a new age quantum physicist, David Bohm, you know. Okay, he did solve some paradoxes, but you have to buy a lot more of other paradoxes for it. <coughs> so I am being told, maybe I'm wrong, I, I would be grateful if some of you know it better, that decoherence is now the central effort. It's precisely, an, an, uh, it also sounds wonderfully uh, Hegelian because in one of the versions, I cannot go now into detailed line, but as they put it, is that when it reaches a certain quantity, uh, a process starts to observe itself. Because it's, you know that you don't need an external observer. Its own complexity registers what its parts are doing. Now, I'm not sure this works. I admit totally openly that I am here, more or less this kind of I'm much worse than, it was a wonderful surprise and a big victory of the left, I was so glad. Did you read it, how Justin Trudeau, the relatively progressive, some stupid journalist thought that he will catch him and ask him, but uh, uh, what is this, how do they call it, my God, this, uh, not just bit, sorry? Quantum computers, no? Quantum computers. Because, uh, and uh, they idiots thought they would catch him, sorry? It wasn't like that, apparently. 
Apparently he asked the journalists in advance, he said yeah. to them, I yeah. hope so. Ah, so he was bluffing, total bluff. Yeah. Even so better for him, that's how the left will win. Yeah, okay. <laughs> no, no, when I inform somebody, you will never catch me, you know, like it's... Uh, <laughs> He was a Hegelian, no, like asking yeah. himself and so on. <laughs> really, but this yeah. is very sad, so it's what all staged. Yeah, and he, he was rehearsing the answer all morning and then it became viral. And then oh my god, now why did you? I will kill so you. You now <laughs> ruined, you ruined my. But, uh, on the other hand, I must yeah, say, I thought that it was too nice to be true, always, <laughs> you know. But, oh my god, sorry, I hate sorry, you. Sorry, Fuck sorry. off, no. <laughs> Put a door. I will not be, I will not say, I don't want to appear to be a racist, but just persons who are from Greece, whose family name begins with, with M, and, uh, no, family name with A, and Christian name with, with M, let's leave it totally neutral, are not permitted to enter this room. I'll get my coat. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, so maybe let's try another one before I have to disappear. I'm not, I'm not Greek, I'm Iranian, just are you an Iranian? Maybe what I would like, okay, let's not lose time, but I would like to visit the country because I was shocked how much more intellectual life you have than many other Arab countries, no? You translate a lot and so on. Sorry? No Arab. I know, sorry, I always make this mistake, but I know, I know, this is your big point of, you know, you are here a little bit like us Slovenes, when they say Slovenia is the most developed part of Balkan and every proud Slovene will tell you, no, we are middle Europa, we are not Balkan. But, no, but, okay, the racist answer is because of this, because you are not Arabs. But isn't it true that your intellectual life is much more? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Modest answer, yes, okay. Let's do one more quickly. There was a lady here, you. It's not really a question, it's just if you could comment in what's happening. So it's just you are a dirty neo-fascist or what? Without. Okay, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Just if you could comment on what's happening in Brazil. No, I don't know enough. I don't know enough, but I think it's a general tra I've spoken about this corruption with Negri five years ago, who just returned from a visit to Brazil, and Negri is a friend of Lula, no? And he, his justification maybe was that. Because of the complexity of electoral system, they need to, to, to enforce their measures. They need to, the collaboration of smaller parties, the only way to get things done was to corrupt a little bit the smaller parties. But it, now it looks, it went way beyond that. My, if you ask me, but I don't know, my spontaneous reaction is maybe, all is true. That is to say, there was corruption in Labour Party, <coughs> but at the same time, there also is a plot and so on and so on. You know, I tend to be a pessimist, if you ask me. <coughs> but it made me very sad because I could not predict. I saw for a long time the Argentinian crisis coming, the Venezuela crisis coming. But I must say, I didn't expect it such a strong crisis in, in, in Brazil, and I would demoralize it in the sense that, not but in the sense that the true problem is not just, you know, corruption or whatever. 
it's that obviously there is a certain limit to the Lula model of government, you know. It worked very well for some time. Even my radical leftist friends were telling me, whatever your criticism of Lula, but he did uh, lower the level of poverty, built intra infrastructure, all that, and so on. But they claimed it's not just a contingent deviation, this explosion now, you know. So I'm very sad because, but I was pessimist from the beginning. What um, I asked, because uh, some psychoanalysts, they are claiming the interesting thing that, that what needs to happen is a psychoanalysis of the whole nation. Oh Mainly because you know, <laughs> but what he said that you know that needs to be the figure of the, the analysis. Yeah but how do they how do they imagine? Maybe because for example on Sunday the Congress votes yeah, the yeah. starting of the yeah, yeah. and despite the fact that at least fifty percent of them dedicated their votes to God and to their own families, to the Brazilian family, apart from that horrible part yeah. of it, yeah. there was a wall built in front of the Congress separating people dressed in red and people dressed in the flag. Yeah, yeah. And there's been a lot of um, people on the streets with very different politics. You know, the elite, basically, that is neoliberal, and then the rest. But the solutions that have been presented so far, at least to my understanding, are exactly what you said. <coughs> the biggest uh, left yeah. parties that, they're still really minority, but they're saying that what the Labour Party and government missed out on is the touch with the social movements. So they are proposing that there is more presence of the social movements in the government as a way of change. But then you're saying- I don't believe, I, I must say, no, 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 I, I, I don't, because again, when you have the government functioning in this way, I, it was exactly the same thing if there is some Argentinian here, he can lynch me or she afterwards, but I know in Argentina how this touch with social movements developed into, developed into clientelism and so on. You know, this is, this is, this maybe my paradoxical formula would have been that what we maybe need is on the opposite, a more alienated government. Alienated, of course, not in the classical Marxist sense, but in the sense that really at a distance, not too much involved with social business and so on and so on. You know, where, uh, like in Slovenia, my country, I like this paradox, although I was very much against communist regime, but now retroactively we can say that the best government we had was in the last years under communism. You know why? Because it was, of course, formally uh, government without democratic legitimization. But you know, election, the disintegration of communism was at the horizon. So now comes the beautiful irony. Because of this, and because they knew their rule is not properly legitimized. They felt guilty all the time and they tried to do the best because they felt this pressure. The moment we got democratically elected government, they said, now we're empowered democratically, fuck off, vote for us, but now we can do whatever we want. And it went much. So I would like to invent something like this, a government which is not fully democratically legitimized, but because of this feels guilty all the time and it's totally terrorized, you know. <laughs> I mean, because again, uh, let's be open here, but uh, it really, uh, 
But you know what interests me? It's not just corruption, but <coughs> what was wrong? What was the limitation of the model itself? Because I like Brazil, why? Because from what I learned, maybe I'm wrong, in Venezuela, the sad thing is not just the crisis of Chavismo. The sad thing is that did they really, with all those social, local communities, whatever, self-organization, but did they really invent anything new? I doubt it. I know they made experiments all the time. I think I already told this story here. It's my favorite because I'm a pessimist. You know, uh, Chavez was often giving, the government was giving factories to workers, workers take it over to organize it. I have a leftist friend there who was extremely evil, in a good sense, and just when it was reported on TV that factories given to workers, he put it down. And then a year later, he went to check it up, what happened to that factory. Not even one was a success. Either they were simply bankrupted, reprivatized, government directly took over. I mean, what I'm saying is that uh, this is a terrific dilemma. Fred Jameson's formula is the only thing that the left can do today is to insist on social democratic demands, you know, like in the United States, universal health care and so on, free education, with the with the secret account that the, no government will be able to fulfill, to meet them, so that in the long term people will learn that we need more radical measures. But isn't this an extremely depressive, sad option? That all we can do is just to provoke the opponent by demands that we know that our only hope is that what we demand will not be met, that it will fail. That's all, the, that's all the crisis of today's uh, left. And it, I mean, uh, something will happen. I don't know what, but I really think we really do not have the formula. And what makes the situation even worse is that, and that's why I'm still a communist, that we cannot simply say, OK, so let's be realist and accept the existing order and play a kind of a third way, you know. We play the capitalist game, but a little bit more healthcare, a little bit more. No, that will also not work. A crisis is approaching, who knows what will happen and so on. So I'm sorry, I don't know more, but if you are from Brazil, I can tell you something else. This may strain. I hate up there Bahia, Salvador. They are lazy, they dance too much and so on. I like dirty cities down Sao Paulo and so on. They are dynamic, they are dirty. You know, I had dirty joke, I will conclude. A wonderful, I became the best person. You know, in Europe, when I was young, there was a myth that in Bahia, are you from Bahia? No, oh, good. You have black guys with gigantic penises. So I met one there, a psychoanalyst, and tasteless as I am, I asked him, you know, like, is it true you have it? You know what he told me? It was a very sad story. He told me it's true, but we pay the price for it. Because it's so big that many of us are impotent, because when we get erection, so much blood goes in there, 
that we almost collapse and so on. And my reaction was so stupid, European racist, I started to jump, ha ha, revenge of the white man. <laughs> but he was a wonderful guy. The result was that I became good personal friend with that guy. He gave me all the sympathy and so on, or whatever I gave him. It was, it was a real example of how a touch of obscenity creates true friendship. <laughs> no, but really, I don't like the atmosphere up there. I, I, I like this dirty, dynamic Brazil, you know. Not that Brazil of... Already, already Rio is for me suspicious. They dance too much there. Yeah. We need hard work, not dancing. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I have to stop now. Thank you very much. And, uh, And uh, I will not forget the central line of thought